In today's episode, we're speaking to Kyra Wackett. Kyra is a therapist, public speaker, and a community advocate. She holds a master's degree in counseling psychology and is a licensed therapist specializing in eating disorders, anxiety disorders, and trauma. She has been speaking on topics related to mental health and well-being for over 10 years and focuses on balancing insight and action to create a meaningful and sustainable change. Her specialist specialities lie in communication, boundary settings, and distress. Let's speak to Kyra, find out how she changed her life by changing her mindset. Let's find out. Money Mindset with Girl Khan podcast will help you to break free from your limiting beliefs, reverse your money shame and blast through your money blocks so that you can live a life of unlimited abundance. In this podcast, we will talk about energy tools and mindset strategies that will help you to understand and change your relationship with money, whether you're in a job, profession, or working on your passion. Change your relationship with money to change your life. I'm your host, Gul Khan. Let's get started. Welcome, welcome. This is Gul Khan, your money mindset expert. And today I'm so excited. We are speaking to the beautiful, the wonderful Kiara Wackett. Welcome, Kiara. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being a guest today, Kiara. Kiara, everyone's heard your intro. They know how fabulous you are. Please, in your own words, share with everybody what it is that you do. I would say that I am a person that lives through and sort of embodies shame resilience. So I'm a licensed therapist. I work with people in the sort of realm of understanding what shame is, how it affects them. I'm also a mom, a partner, a friend, a daughter. I think the way that I sort of approach all my life is recognizing all of us are sort of chasing this idea of feeling like we are good enough, we're worthy, we belong, and we get stuck in these ways of interacting sometimes that we're trying to do what we think we should do to do that. And so we kind of mix up what fitting in is with belonging. And so I kind of see my role now in my life as a whole of really recognizing where and how I do that, but also how I can bring light to the ways that other people do that, both personally and professionally, and kind of help all of us reframe what it looks like to truly authentically belong in the world. Wow. <laughs> what a wonderful um, mission you have. Kira, tell us, how did you end up doing this kind of work i mean you're very it's very unique when i was looking through your um your website and going through some of the things you've done it's a very unique way of approaching therapy i mean there are a number of um therapists around and i've, I've just spoken to a number of people but you have a very unique way of doing it so tell us how did you end up being in this particular age? it's a very niche thing that you do as well so tell me how it all started yeah, with you yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think so many of us find our ways into our professional selves through our personal journeys. Yes. So I am a server of complex childhood trauma, I've lived through my own eating order. Probably I would say I have candle on it, although it's be moderate experience of anxiety throughout the world every day, sort of hypervigilance. And because I went through things very young, I had a lot of kind of push to be with therapists, a lot of push to do quote unquote the work, you know, person talk about this and have people tell me, well, you must be angry at your mom because my mom's struggling with a cocaine addiction and was a single mom. I was her only child and I was kind of moved in and out of homes while she was struggling. What we learned down the road was undiagnosed bipolar disorder. So, was, you know, you should be feeling this. I would expect you to feel this and not really asking questions, or I would have 
people that were less interested in talking to under like asking me questions or just talking in a way that allowed for me to be seen and were just more interested in telling me what I needed to do. I even think about as a therapist that specializes in eating disorders, I would walk in the room and I'd try to talk about these things and be like, I want to figure out how to stop doing these behaviors, but the behavior not the issue. Why is it that I feel okay? to just be in place? Why am I always plagued by these ideas of not being worthy, not being enough? Sometimes, and I say this to somebody in the field, I think sometimes we get into this, we get this role of being a helper, whether it is, you know, coaching, therapy, doctors, everybody across the board, financial advisors, we just wait of trying to fix and solve. And we forget to just be, to be curious, to empower curiosity within our clients. And so for me, I, I spent this down the track of I'm, I'm going to be a doctor and I knew from when I was little, I didn't want to do it, but it was what everybody said. I, you know, oh, this, and I kind of latched on again, the, I just want everybody to think I'm good enough. And I gave myself permission in my early twenties to let go of everybody else's dream and kind of figure out what I wanted to do. And I sat for a few years trying to figure out what does my life look like? And And again, going through my own healing journey, trying to figure out what it looked like to move through pain and past trauma, not that we release it, but integrate it in a way Mm -hmm. that I could live. And finally found myself kind of face to face with the idea of becoming a therapist myself. And, and, you know, there's so many different phrases that you're in a helping profession, you're still healing yourself in the process. And that's very true. But I think the reason it's true is because there's a humanity that I found in my training of recognizing again, there's nothing about me that needs to be fixed. There was nothing about me that was broken. I wasn't undeserving of love and connection. I was brought into a system, a cultural norm that says that you aren't good enough unless, you know, and again, that could be gender, race, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, body size, your family orientation. So again, having a mom who was eventually in prison, not having a dad, those were checks against me based on the system that says this is who you have to be. And so I went into very traditional therapy. I did, I worked in the therapy office. I saw clients one-on-one. I do love that work, but I found that change wasn't happening in the way that I wanted to see it happen. I wanted to be mm-hmm. a part of a different conversation. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, what's the latest crisis? What's this? Let's complain about this thing. You'll never believe what happened this week. You're still talking through things and you get comfortable in what I call the predictable shittiness, the like the everyday stuff that we don't want it, but we're so comfortable in it that we'll do whatever we can to stay there. And the change is too scary. So I really- So, you, so, so you're basically my- saying people get, um, and I just want to stop here for a second. People get yeah. comfortable being uncomfortable. And that's and then then they're being yeah. stuck in that place because they they're so used to that. Yes, that, that becomes a comfort zone, isn't it? They 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 are they. It's you know the, the devil that you know compared to the devil that you don't know. So they just get used to that yes. sort of scenario, and it's very difficult to get out of it. They may be really, really uncomfortable. They may be sitting on on hot coals, but yeah, you know, right. and but they are reluctant to do anything about it to change because the change is too um, too scary. Yeah, because at least they know how to do it. Yeah. They're not getting out of it. They feel stuck, but they know how to do it. They start mm-hmm. to, I think the word fine is what I think about it, sort of resolving to a life of fine. Mm-hmm. And and again, and then quick fixes to keep producing, yes. you know, so being 
in the US and being so hustle culture driven, it's like, well, what's the quick fix? How do I make myself feel better? How do I, you know, lose the weight really quickly, fix all, set all these boundaries and everything's going to be perfect. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to take a minimalism class and everything's going to be good. And it's, it's that it's the, I'm only willing to endure change if it's a rapid fix and then everything's going to be fine. It's the, the tension that exists between the, the decision to make the change and then the output that comes from the work involved. It's the process that I think we're scared of and the process is what life is. And so that's really, I think that's what I wanted to do in my business is say, we need to approach the process. You need to differentiate between, you know, bad and good pain. I don't like those terms, but the idea that kind of like when you're working out, there's a pain that your body's telling you, Hey, you need to stop. And there's a pain that's a good pain when we're moving our body. And I think helping people attune to their bodies and their mental, emotional selves enough to recognize you don't have to do this, but you do deserve to feel better about yourself. And you were born with cards stacked against you based on the cultural systems that we live in that have said you have to earn your place when that's not true. And Mm. what would it be like if you allowed yourself to be uncomfortable enough to explore that possibility? That has to be something we bring to the table. Definitely. And I'm thinking about my own life in that process. I think one of the most difficult parts of my life or section of my life was when I was in my second marriage. And it was a highly, highly, highly abusive marriage. Now looking back in, when I, now that I'm out of it, I sometimes am aghast at the level of abuse I endured, but I was, mm-hmm. I, I, I got used to it and the, I got comfortable if that, that's even possible around that abuse I was expecting it and it was just so horrific now looking back in hindsight but then it was just normal and I remember questioning my sanity questioning whether I'm feeling right and I was questioning all sorts of things and my health was deteriorating and the lies I was feeling I was married to a a textbook narcissist completely Mm -hmm. you know pathological liar and now I know that things was his fault. I mean, now that I'm, and this has been said, by the way, he and I have been separated for seven years. We've been divorced for six and a half. So I've had a long time to heal and recover and look back. So I'm not having a go at him or having a go at the person I was when I was in that marriage. But it took drastic things for me to walk away. And, but that was not necessary. You know, when I look back, you know, him, him cheating on me, me catching him, that was just, like God's way of saying, look, what the hell are you doing? The things that happened before were enough. They were enough for me to walk away, yet I didn't. I And I began to, remember the, in 2015, I left him in 2016. What you just said reminded me of 2015, the peak of the abuse. I doubted everything I said, everything I did. Mm-hmm. I'm by, I'm just without sounding boastful. I'm qualified lawyer in three jurisdictions. I'm a qualified uh, barrister. I'm a qualified um, solicitor with the England Ways Law Society, and I'm also a qualified New York attorney. So, pretty, you know, half decent. You know, not stupid at all by any standards. But I doubted my intellectual ability. I thought I was stupid. I thought I was dumb. I, I, and I believed I was ugly. And I believed I'm not. I'm no, you know, Claudia Schiffer, but I'm not ugly by any standards. But I believed I was fine. This is by, this is now going back, you know, eight years ago. Now, I believed I was old, fat, ugly, all of those things. And it wasn't just that I I thought it, I believed it because it's fed into me so many times. Yes. So when I think about, you know, when you people say, well, in a few months, you know, why don't they leave? Well, yes, I wasn't physically being abused. It was emotional abuse, of course, and financial. 
but I didn't even see it. I just got more and more and more involved in that relationship. And the more abusive he became, the more submissive I became. And I remember knowing when he was going to come home on the weekends, he was only home on the weekends. I knew that he was going to scream and shout at me. I could I could close the door wrong and he would do it. But I wasn't walking away from the marriage. And I had remember one of my cousins, and being a narcissist, he didn't show his true colors to anybody apart from this one closest cousin of mine, and she saw his true colors. And she, everybody else thought he was the nicest person on the planet. This cousin of mine was telling him, leave him, leave him. And I honestly thought, you know, she doesn't understand. It's my fault. The poor bloke is not doing anything. It's my fault. I don't know why she keeps saying anything. So I'm talking, you know, as you're saying, I'm remembering all of this, but it's so difficult to get out from that situation. Had I not had external factors being involved, I think it was divine intervention in my case. You know, God had to show me something that I just wouldn't tolerate, which was, you know, seeing him in bed with another woman. That's something that's just, that's my I had to that's my line crossed I I had to leave then apart from that I stayed and Mm -hmm. that pain that shame that everything I just endured and I'm saying this when I say this I'm talking to you I can imagine the number of people who put who go through that shame and embarrassment and that life through the pain and worthiness Mm -hmm. issues that come up like you just said Mm -hmm. But they they have no idea that they are amazing just there they are and they deserve respect and love and affection and attention. And it's yeah. it's it's so difficult to break free. How I, I, I that's a question that I want to ask you. I mean I'm I'm I, I grew up in a single parent household too, but I'm, I was very very lucky, very lucky that my mother was an amazing 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 mother. She worked very hard and did labour work, but she you know gave me a loving home. We grew up in poverty, but amazing home. How did you? get to grips with yourself growing up and moving home in a foster home to other homes and then eventually having your mother in in jail and um and with you know being a cocaine addict how did you work on your self-image because I I I know that my self-image is completely destroyed and it took me a long time to repair it how did you work on it with you know because you start you were given that to start with right I mean I think what you as you were describing that experience and I think back to you know, so being in a relationship with someone who's narcissistic is just a great sort of bookended case example of who he was in the relationship evolved. There's sort of a, there's a grooming process. There's a slow unraveling of your sense of self that happens for all of us. That could be, you know, somebody that wakes up and then they are like, how did I not see that I gained 150 pounds or, you know, or some random amount of you know weight? Or how did I not see that I've been unhappy in my marriage for 40 years? How did I not see that I was in a relationship with a narcissist? But the thing that happens with shame, so shame is the threat to connection and belonging. Shame is rooted to the belief that we have at our core that we are undeserving of love and belonging unless, and then fill in the blank with whatever that is. Shame is sort of a slow burn. Mm-hmm. So you, you know, think about from the time we were little, little kids, it was, I think back to how I was treated as a straight A student versus friends of mine that were treated differently because they got C's. How was somebody treated in a white body versus a black or a brown body? How was mm-hmm. somebody treated in a bigger body versus a small body? People that wore, you know, all black clothes and painted their nails black in school versus the person that was, you know, the quote unquote preppy kid. There were these distinctions that started to happen when we were, you know, two, three, four, five, six years yeah. old, where we started to notice people are treated differently. And I have an almost three-year-old. She sees it and how other people around her are treated. And she'll notice these things. 
So what it is, is that from the time we were little and we're not blaming our parents or the world because it's not, it's a collective responsibility that we all play a part in, Agreed. but it's yeah. recognizing the system was designed to make us stay addicted to the chase of being good enough. Mm. So then in your relationship, you know, once you had it, it wasn't that you thought your relationship was great. It wasn't even at first that you thought you were undeserving of something else that happened over time. That was his mm. goal was to keep you that in that feeling. But initially it's like, I got it. I have a person that's, that's here and that is staying. And I'm going to do that. And particularly if you had shame, because you mentioned being married prior mm. relationships, not working out time scarcity and the, like, mm. you should be further along in your life. And why aren't you married and doing this and blah, 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 and all the norms that are sort of put on us. And mm. so, you know, for me, it was feeling like I had these check marks against me based on family based on my body compared to my friend's body is being bigger. And now I know that my body was, you know, rapid cycling through trauma as a middle schooler and a teenager, my body was doing what it could to survive. But it was this feeling of, you know, kind of being one down in that way. I remember I had acne, not on my face, but on all over on my chest and on my arms. And I was so embarrassed for anybody to see that. I felt like I couldn't wear swimsuits because my friends were smaller than me and I couldn't even wear a tank top. You know, I, I played sports. You couldn't wear the tank top. I was with a t-shirt underneath because if somebody saw that, that would be enough. So it's these micro ways that we start to perform that mm. reinforce in us you are broken. And that's what shame does. Shame is like a sleazy used car salesman. That's like, if you just hide this, if you pretend to do this, if you perform this way, look this way, secure these things, you'll be good enough. And every time that shame comes in and you feel like there's a threat to connection and belonging, what would it mean for me if I left my second marriage? What would it mean for me if I wasn't smart enough in the beginning to know who he was? Is anyone going to believe me? And so Mm -hmm. they're going to paint me as the villain. And all of these thoughts that happen in your case, sort of indoctrinated by his abuse, Mm-hmm. conscious unconscious you know again he's and, not um, a and, and a culture as well because i think culture plays a big exactly. part in this yes, yes. I, I remember yes. when i did finally caught him and he just he did a whole yeah i mean he requires a whole book to explain that you know his 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 mindset and the way he is um and being a typical narcissist he's unremorseful as well he's just you know, it, you know, it, you know. There's, there's no one remorse to at all. His, his idea of everything is someone had to black magic him. Mean, he, he was responsible. You know, black magic caused him right. to behave in that way. So let's just let him be right. you or is. But the the point I was making is he, everything. Um, he said he admitted at one point, and he was. I still remember this so distinctly that you know I've I've done a lot of healing on this, so I, it doesn't trigger me as much. But it was, it was not the fact that what he was saying or the way he said it, it's the fact there's element of truth in it. And I'm going to say this is what he said. Yes. So after admitting to everything, which basically was, I found out throughout marriage, there was prostitutes, there's casino, there's alcohol, there's gambling. We are, I'm a practicing Muslim and he pretended to be the practicing Muslim in front of me. Um, I never drank alcohol and we, you know, very strict in certain beliefs. I, do, I used to wear the job. He took it off for him because he didn't like it, but he was supposed to be practicing and, um, I found out all of these things afterwards. So he he admitted to everything. And then, um, and that was because I, another reason why I found out when, yeah, when he sat in front of me, he had a smirk on his face. And I remember him saying to me, he goes, go, cool. even after everything I've done, everything I've done, 
And he, because he didn't, he didn't want to divorce me. He still wanted us to be together, by the way. Keep this in mind. He still mm-hmm. thought he, you know, he wanted to keep me and his girlfriend and everything else. And keep in mind mm-hmm. that we hadn't slept together for all these years. Anyway, there was a whole uh, other thing. And he had a smirk on his face and said to me, even after everything I've done, do you know what? No one's going to blame me. When we get divorced, mm-hmm. everyone's going to blame you. They're, you're going to be called a divorcee who's been divorced twice. Your kids will be told your mother's been divorced twice. No one's going to say one word to me and everyone's going to call you because you know I'm religious enough of a high moral character. They all are going to doubt your character. You're going to be branded as yeah. a divorcee and as a low character woman. No one's going to say a word to me. Now, I come yeah. from South Asian culture. I'm a brown woman. And even though I was born and brought up in, I was born in Manchester, brought up in London. So in Western, you know, I was born in Western world. I grew up in the Western world. I was educated in Western world and I'm qualified lawyer in three jurisdictions. Irrespective of all of that, I'm still a brown girl or brown woman. Yes, and, exactly. And, and I have brown culture, right? South Asian, you know, namely Pakistani culture. There was so much truth to what he just said that it tore my heart. And it made me realize that is the one reason that I stayed with him all the time because the shame attached to leaving him because he was so abusive. But it doesn't matter. I could deal with his abuse. I couldn't deal with the shame that was attached to leaving my second husband. doesn't matter what he did. And yes. this is the why I this yes. scene is still in my mind and I've done a lot of healing around it. So I'm not upset with him or what he said, but that's the truth. There's an element of truth of what he's saying. And even now when people find yes. out that I've been divorced twice, you know, they they normally are like, oh, okay. And it's usually, okay, what did you wrong? What's wrong with you? There's, you know, th- there's no yes. element of question of, okay, maybe she was unlucky and there was, both of our marriages were highly abusive. Um, but it's just the judgments that come from my culture. I hope you are enjoying today's episode. If you want to learn more about my mindset strategies and energy tools to help you change your money mindset, then please register for my Abundance Mindset Makeover Workshop by visiting www.abundancemindsetmakeover.com. See you inside the workshop. And it's that piece where, again, you've identified it's not even just the fact that you were raised around these norms and beliefs, but you attached to them. Yeah. Like they are important. There are certain things about your culture that are really important to you too. So then it's, it's that, and then you start to play sort of a value game and you start to kind of talk yourself into things because of that. And because you want to be seen a certain way, you want to be perceived a certain way because these things are important to you and you work hard at them. And now you're in a position where you're going to lose it all. And I think that's the thing for all of us where, shame sort of stops us from moving forward. I think about this with, you know, as I got older, setting boundaries with my mom and I lived with my grandma for a period of time. She kind of became a second mom to me, having to set boundaries with them, Mm. with two people with their own mental health, their own norms. We were very codependent, very enmeshed just based on their things. Setting boundaries is really tricky. And I'm still the person I made a, a decision to not talk to my grandma for a while because it was very abusive. It was very mentally and emotionally abusive to be around her and to be around people in my family. And the story from everyone was, well, just she's so old. What if something happens to her? You know, you she's she's set in her ways. Like you can you need to forgive her. These pressures of yeah. be the good girl. 
it's not okay to do that. Or when I set a boundary with my mom and my mom does a really great job, she sort of experiences, I think we know that narcissism is the ego trying to protect itself. People that are narcissistic shame on levels we can't even process. So there is, and I don't say that to bring pity or to bring empathy to them. I say that to say, there are their body is reacting to the same feelings that we have, but to an extreme and in a way where their only source of power is to make somebody else look bad and to make yes. themselves look like higher up or or to be pitied that yes. everybody else is poorly. And my mom does the second one sometimes as I think a means of defense. Mm-hmm. And so the same thing with her, I'll set a boundary and she'll talk to someone else. And I mean, I've had her therapist will have labeled me as like, I have borderline personality disorder. I can't believe she's not supporting your recovery because I wouldn't let her bring certain things into our house because she doesn't use them in any way that's mentally really affirming and supportive of her recovery and, and boundaries I had to set because she has stolen meds from us before, or even if she's sober now, she's not working her program in a way that's true to the program. And I'm not going to support sort of half-ass moves. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to mm-hmm. allow my three-year-old to watch her not put the work in, but then everybody else will be, I, even my mother-in-law one time called me and she was, I can't believe you're telling your mom what she can and can't pack to come out to visit you. And I was like, I didn't tell her what she can wear and not wear. She asked me if she could go to the store again, that she, this Columbia brand store out here and she always buys clothes, but she never wears them. And I said, I didn't tell her what she can pack. I said, I'm not interested in taking you to the store again because you never wear the clothes. It's a big taxing ordeal to take you there. And you're so afraid you're going to get a spot on your shirt that you never go. I'm not going to take you there so you can buy more stuff to sit in your closet. But the norm that then is created is you're telling her what to do. You won't let her be her own person. And I think it's that piece for us because again, our sense of self gets hooked to what everybody else thinks, what everybody else sees. You, you, you know, again, your body size, your even like somebody else's judgment about you practicing your religion, how yeah. they perceive it versus how you perceive it and what it means to you and what it looks like for you. These things have become sort of taken by the external systems. Yeah. So then the approval. Yeah is from other people, rather than if we're talking religion and faith, your higher power. If we're talking about your sense of self, rooting it within you. And so we lose that sort of kind of up and downstream of rooting into ourself and finding our connection to whatever our higher power is. And because it gets lost in the sea of everyone else. And that's, I think the biggest thing I'm still learning how to do it. I I fall into this all the time. You know, I'll compare myself to other toddler moms. Like I'm not doing it well enough or I'm a therapist. How come I can't help my kid not have a tantrum? People must think I'm a terrible mom because I yelled at her one time or, you know, blah, blah, blah. We're in the house hunting market right now. And I'm panicked that I've somehow convinced my husband and manipulated him into putting a bid on a house, even though I know it's not true, but I'm so scared we're going to make a quote unquote mistake. And it's not even that we'll make a mistake. It's that I'm afraid I will, I will be responsible for something not working out. Mm -hmm. And those are the things that come from years of feeling like, you know, in your case, probably even before that marriage, it's the responsibility of being something for everybody else, whether that is in service of other people, being the person that can manage everything for everybody, being the person everyone can count on, whatever that narrative is, that becomes the hat that shame is hooked to, or I guess the hook shame puts its hat on, we'll say is 
then you have to keep that. And the moment you choose yourself, you're choosing to walk away from this. And you have spent your life telling yourself, if you don't have this, if you don't have the approval, the connection, you have nothing. So it doesn't Mm. matter if you're happier, you're not going to have anybody in your life that even gives a shit to see it. You will be alone, which is going to eventually be more miserable than this pain you're enduring now, even though, again, coming back to that kind of comfort and the discomfort, even though you don't want it and you don't like it. Mm. Oh my God, that's so powerful. I, I, as you said that, I was listening and I'm thinking, yeah, I, I can totally relate to a lot of things you're saying. And mine was, I was after mom passed away. I, I, I reconnected with my father, and I have always been the good girl. Like I've always been mm. the good girl. I did studied really well. I didn't date. I didn't sleep around. I didn't do anything. And I, I, I had arranged marriage, proper arranged marriage, where nothing um I didn't I spoke to my dad I went to the individual once or twice and then said to my dad it's up to you and I didn't speak much more to him and then yeah, I met him three or four times and then I was married up to this individual this my first mm-hmm. husband who ended up being highly 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 physically abusive he was six foot something and you know monstrous and then it was again in, again maybe it's just the culture that we are we, or what we allow other people to treat us that way because I think in my case I allowed people because I was so busy trying to please people and trying to be, um, you know, try to have the family that I never had. Because after my mom passed away, I was very much alone. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be, I wanted a connection with my brother and, and I wanted a connection with my father and my, you know, my my extended yeah. family. I wanted people to approve of me because I was seen as the, you know, the, the all she doesn't study and whatever else. I was seen as arrogant. So, yeah. so, so I overcompensated by doing everything what everyone else wanted. And then yes. even when I went through my first, I wasn't allowed to divorce my first husband, even after all the abuse until, you know, my uncle stood up for me, may he rest in peace. And he said to my, to me, he said, look, I'm behind you. Do whatever you need to do. And I will speak to your dad because mm-hmm. my dad and my brother didn't give me permission to divorce my first husband, even though he was physically right. attacked me and the police had removed him from my home. Can you imagine? And only once I got yeah. the permission for my uncle, my chachu, um, after that, I, I filed for divorce and then we went through divorce and so forth. And it, it was not cont- contended. And and I know for a fact that my dad felt, felt shame, my brother felt shame and the extended family felt lots yeah. of shame. So I was aware of that during my second marriage hence the the need to stay yes. in there even longer make it work and then when he yes. my, when my second husband said this word to me the people will blame me I was all too aware of the fact that this would be the case again for my brother right. for my you know my father and other people around me and I will be seen as someone of low character even though I had done everything in my power to, to make both marriages work and be the mm-hmm. good girl and and I think yeah and what don't I was just going to say, and then because you said that your brother and your dad, you longed for a connection with them. And then your first marriage, it was, even though this is what was necessary and right for you, for, for everything, there's a sense of shame you had about how it impacted them. Of so course. then it wasn't just that what your second husband said was true for you. It was now I'm going to be the cause of their pain again. And all I've wanted was to be closer and to be connected to them. And it 100%. seems like no matter what I do... I'm moving myself further from them. And so that is the thing that we try to avoid. Cause you, if, if it wasn't that, if everyone was like, we want you to be happy and we want this and that. And again, some of it is culture. Some of it is just the the interactions that you had specifically in the ways that things were said. And some was your internal story too. But if you had had that in a way where you felt like choosing what's right for me 
is allowed. Choosing what's mm-hmm. right for me is is okay. And even if it's not quote unquote approved of, my love is not conditional, but to these things. So mm-hmm. I think that's the thing that happens is we love, which again is the sense of belonging, is the the desire to be loved truly and fully. Yeah. And we start to see that there are conditions to the love. And so we just sort of broaden the scope of normalized dysfunction. You know, the example I give sort of in the US of, I mean, this happens everywhere, but again, I have a three-year-old. She watches no more than 30 minutes of TV a week. That has been like that. Even she's a COVID kid. Like we have not extended beyond that. And, you know, we'll talk to people and like, good luck. You know, everybody's on their screens. Everyone's doing this. And this is just, it's, it's normal. It's normalized, but it's still unhealthy. And so those are the things, you know, when you think about culture stuff, when people talk about Americans eat too much, blah, blah, blah. These are normalized behaviors that are still unhealthy and dysfunctional. And when it comes to love, it is we normalize dysfunction and we allow it to be, we sort of conflate that love can mean this. Love can mean someone treats you abusive. Love can mean that someone hits you, but then they tell you that they love you and you should say you love them too and forgive them because they tell you they won't do it again. And when they do it again, you you recognize that they're human and they're making mistakes and you and you forgive them and you love them because that's what love is. Love doesn't mean quitting on someone. So then again, the back end story is that versus saying, no, this is this is conditional love. And I'm deserving of having a love that's not conditional. Mm. I think it takes a lot of healing and self-awareness to get to that point i think i yeah the, the last i'm i've been single for the last um seven years and it, i'm still going through that healing process you know I'm, I'm a lot heavier now than i was um back in 2015 i must be at least a size bigger but yet i feel more beautiful more content with how i look and how i am um, like I'm doing this podcast without any makeup. I'm I'm okay doing that because I don't have to prove my about my looks to anyone. I'm not a, a conscious that, you know, my hair isn't perfect or my, you know, this isn't perfect. I'm just very happy in my skin at the moment. But it took me a long time to get here. And it takes a lot of healing, especially around shame, um, to do that. I mean, and obviously this process of forgiveness and so forth but I think we have to forgive ourselves more than anyone else when it comes to shame because we are we we are the cause of our own shame I think other people judge us less in our mind we judge us a lot more strictly and then we cause ourselves to wallow in shame unnecessarily of course as well because we we try to live up to these unrealistic expectations you know when I think of myself I did not choose an abusive husband what first time around or second time around. So why am I taking the shame for it? You know, my, my father didn't take the responsibility. You know, he chose, he said, in the end, he said it was your destiny. That's that literally his words, you know, it's your destiny. Um, the lack of due diligence, they didn't bother doing it. You know, I was married up within four months and they didn't do any of the due diligence they should have done. It doesn't matter. It was meant to be whatever. But the, the kind of response was, it's your, it's your destiny. It was meant to be. You meant to have a daughter from that yeah. marriage. That's it. There's no remorse from that point of mom as well either. It was all my right. fault. So the shame right. was all mine. Um, had I not done whatever they wanted, then I'm not a good. I'm not a good person. I'm not a good daughter, and so forth. I did it, and I, I went through this hell. It was still mine. So I lose out either way. But it was on my head right. because I gave them that power. Right. 
And I took on the yeah. responsibility for family name and shame. And we do that far too often. That's this Oh, is- gosh. Yeah. Well, there's so there's this there's a triangle It was talked about in terms of kind of interpersonal connection, particularly around like family conflict. But I, I really like it in the context of shame. So it's called the drama triangle. And basically, there's the hero, the victim and the villain. And when I think about this in the context of shame, it all relates to over and under control. So the hero, it's not that we think we are better than anyone. It's assuming a responsibility for everything and everyone. We are the ones that have to have it together. We're the ones that have to manage it, do it. We should know better. We should do better. We should have all these things. The villain is the, so then when something goes wrong, it's our fault. We should have been able to control it. We should have been able to see it can get reinforced. And again, like how you said, these subtle messages that we get from the the world around us, but it's the internal story that we go, Mm -hmm. I should have been able to stop that. I should have been able to do these things. I should have been stronger. And then there's the third point, which is the victim. And I I don't love these three words, but they're the words in the actual drama triangle and its originality. But the victim then is the feeling what we get to when we try to control everything, everything feels like it's falling apart. We can't do it. And then we're like, basically nothing works out. Everything sucks. Everything's terrible. I can't control anything. Nothing ever works out for me. So it's this sort of spiraling back and forth. And what happens is we sort of exist oscillating back and forth between the hero and the villain. And then something happens, we break and we bounce into the victim spot for a period of time, but that's not a safe place to stay because that's no control. So you have to get what you need and then quickly get back to the other two spots. And that's really what happens, I think. And in my life, it basically was that I was going back and forth where I would constantly feel like I'm responsible for everything. I'm the problem and everything didn't work out, but then I would break. And then suddenly it's everything's terrible. Nobody sees me. Nobody gets me. And then Mm. you quickly have to bounce out of that. And that is really linked back to and fed into by hustle culture. And the idea again Mm. of you better keep moving, you better do something, you can't wallow and you better start controlling the things that you can control. But also really shame tries to make you control the things you can't control. And you, Mm. again, you should have known better. You should have walked, you should have done this. These, these ideas that we get in our head about how we should have handled something. And then over time, I'm sure you went through this in different points too. As we get more insight, insight, if we're not careful, becomes a weapon that we use against our past selves. Now, you know, all this stuff about narcissism. So it's really easy to look back on the moments where you should quote unquote, should have left instead of saying, now I know this and I've lived this and I've learned what it looks like to make sure that I'm not in a narcissistic relationship moving forward. Mm -hmm. And I can recognize who I am as a person and what my boundaries are to make sure that I'm not in a position that those things happen to me again in the same ways. And I'm going to commit myself to that, not just for me, but to open the door to conversations like you do on the podcast. So more people hear this messaging that is taking the insight and using it as a tool rather than a weapon that's sort of mired in shame. And I'm just going to bring this back to entrepreneurship because I think most people listening to this podcast are entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs. I want to reinforce this idea. This element of shame can play a part even in your entrepreneurial journey because we have this high expectations of ourselves. And anybody who's an entrepreneur would know this. You fail 10 times and succeed once. You only succeed once, to be honest. But the 10 times you fail, the entrepreneurs that do well are those who can deal with their shame, can deal with their pain compared to those entrepreneurs who can't. Because if they can't, they then end up being left to the wayside and they don't even get up. I know people who've, uh, you know, who, who have great abilities and talents, but they, but, you know, they they were unsuccessful. Things went belly up, 
And the shame attached to that failure was so severe, they never managed to get back up. They ended up doing menial, um, small-time jobs and you know, stayed small and never rose again to build anything up on themselves, not because they lacked talent, but because they weren't able to deal with the shame. I mean, maybe that's, yeah. that's, that's something we can talk about on, on another episode, but this is something else I think is quite relevant. That shame is not just in your personal life. It can play havoc in your professional uh, life as well. It could be with the career. It could be with your business. It could be a whole, you know, whole, you know, different things. It could be, um, you know, uh, all, you know, office politics and, you know, something, you know, you had, a, you had an affair or something else or rumors or whatever. Shame can come and, you know, sort of, become a, a, a pain point in any area of your life, yeah. personal and professional, and you have to address it accordingly, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think you know, I'm very much in that as a solo entrepreneur. And it's the feeling of, you know, so shame can come for us. I mentioned pursuing mm-hmm. being a doctor for a while. Yeah. And that's the shame of making a choice to find a career that you want versus a career that you could do or that other people expect you to do. And that happens all the time. Yeah. It's, you know, it's also the person on the flip side of it that's been in a job for 20 years. They've hated it. And the sort of realization of that or the allowing themselves to maybe name it and then making a decision to move or telling themselves that this is all they can do. It's somebody that goes, I don't have enough education to apply for that job, or I don't have enough skills to apply for that job. I wouldn't be good enough. Or they get the job and then they've got imposter syndrome the whole time because they're Mm. constantly assuming that they don't deserve to be in the room. It could be, you know, again, the entrepreneur that I'm not on social media. I made that choice because I teach on social media and the impact of mental health on kids. As a therapist, I knew I know what it can do, but it was doing it to me. So it wasn't even just I know that it can have a negative effect. It was I would post on social media and my entire sense of self-worth would get wrapped up into how many people liked, responded, commented, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And if I wasn't getting that, and somebody else was, that was the big point because shame is also comparison driven. Yeah, it is. I would lose myself in it. I would lose myself in trying to make it better, do something more. And then I was not focused on creating content that can actually create change in people's lives. I was focused on creating a really good Instagram post or a TikTok reel that didn't do anything to foster the meaningful change I was talking about because I was playing a game to get a little hook for me to get a dopamine hit. It Mm -hmm. wasn't connecting to me. But the shame I had when I said, I'm not going to do that, the shame I still carry sometimes when I make choices about how I run my business or, you know, I'm starting a podcast this fall. I have so much shame even coming into it of like, who's going to listen to it? What if it fails? Mm -hmm. What if it flops? I mean, we do this as business owners. What if it fails? What if it flops? Because instead of focusing on, I don't want to do this because I need to be successful and, and externally successful, I suppose is the point I wanted to say. I want to do this because just like you, I love having meaningful conversations. I love being in a position where I get to learn from other people. That's my favorite part about being a therapist is the opportunity for somebody to walk into a room and vulnerability is already there in a very different way than it is in the real world center. But there's that constant feeling of how are other people going to see it? And so I think the biggest thing that I think about is shame really gets us to focus on content So again, your weight, your degrees, your education level, your age, when you become a parent, how many kids you have, you know, where you live, how much money you make, all of these sort of external factors, your resume, and again, personal and professional. 
But the healing point is to focus on context. So we think about you could have all those things. I mean, we know this with money. We know that the research shows that there's a tipping point when you make too much money and your happiness actually goes down. So Mm -hmm. it's starting to ask yourself, what's the context of my life? Do I want to do these things? Does it feel good when I do these things? Am I enriched when I make the choices that are right for me, even if I'm risking maybe not being alignment with these external things? And when you get there, you know, the moment I can turn down an opportunity because it doesn't feel right to me and I'm not motivated by financial scarcity and feeling like my business is only successful if I make a certain amount of money, when I can make that choice, that feels way better. When I can say yes to something, even if it doesn't pay because it's how I want to spend my time Mm. and because I believe in the effect it can have because it lines up with my values. I didn't become a therapist to make money. Yes, money is important. We need to let go of the shame around that too. But from a business standpoint, it's thinking about, especially if you're starting your own business, if you're starting your own business as a desire to make an F ton of money, it's the wrong motivator. I hope that everybody's business makes a lot of money. I hope that everybody's business gives them what they need to support their lives and to support the people around them. But it's the wrong goal because Mm -hmm. it's anchored again on content. Instead, it's thinking, what is the thing you want to wake up and do that you are willing to, like you said, when you fall, you're so excited to try again that you're not going to talk yourself out of it. And that's, I think, the antidote for us personally and professionally. Awesome. On that note, we're going to wrap up this episode. We've gone slightly longer than I had um, anticipated or hoped, but it's been a fascinating conversation, so I didn't want to cut it short. So, Kyra, tell us, um, where can we connect with you? How can we find you on the internet? They can head over to my website. So it's adversityrising.com. There's tons of information there about how to connect with me. You can drop me an email. You can join my email list, check out some of the different free resources that I have. I honestly, I tell people though, if you are interested in connecting, again, going back to what we talked about, I love just making that human to human connection and supporting somebody to figure out what's the next step for you. So dropping me an email or joining my email list is, is the best way to start getting that conversation going. Wonderful. So if you're listening to us on podcast, then the links for Kyra will be in the show notes. And if you're watching us on YouTube, then down below in the description section, once again, we'll have the links for her. Go check her out. As you said, <laughs> heard from me today, she is a fascinating person and she can really learn a lot more about yourself. Even if you think you've healed yourself and if you are on a healing journey, I think we are a work in progress all the time. If you really do believe that you need to heal or you think you can heal further, I do um, highly recommend it. Check out her website and see um, what you can learn from her and how she can help you. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Kyra, for being such an amazing guest and for giving us such a wonderful conversation. We have to have you back for Money Talkies, but today, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for listening to me and Kyra today on Friday Feature. I will be back on another Friday Feature speaking to another amazing individual, finding out how they change their life by changing their mindset. Until the next time we meet, this is Gul Khan signing off. Take care and bye for now. If you want to learn more about my energy tools and mindset strategies, then please visit my website www.gulkhan.com. And if you want to take part in our five-day abundance mindset makeover workshop, where I deep dive into energy tools for abundance, then please go to www.abundancemindsetmakeover.com and register. I look forward to being your mentor in the next workshop. And if you want to learn about the spiritual laws of money, then go and get my book, Laws of Money, from www.lawsofmoney.com. Until the next time we meet, this is Gul Khan signing off. Take care and bye for now.